our breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everybody. Today is Wednesday, the 14th of August, and we'd just like to acknowledge as Wednesday breakfast that we are broadcasting from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We'd like to recognise our sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. Yeah, other than that, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Um, so... How's your Wednesdays been? Will, you're back in the studio with yeah. us. Yeah, um, it was really good. I was in Sydney um, visiting my baby niece, and oh. she's very cute, very, very squishy, and <laughs> she puts food everywhere. <laughs> like, I think being happy mm. means flapping her arms for her, and she's really happy when she's eating. Yeah. And so she's got food in her hands. It ends up, like... 10 metres that way. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's very cute, and I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, how have, you, how have you all been? Yeah, well, I, went, I headed down to the uh, university walkout on Friday, <gasps> yes, yeah. which was pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. So that How was, many people turned up? Yeah, about, actually, uh, quite a few. I would say a few hundred. Mm, okay. um, and we basically occupied the city for three hours in mm. the rain, which was intense. <laughs> uh, so for any of you who weren't there, it was university student walkout this time, but anyone's mm. invited, really. Um, and we marched around the city and marched out the front of a corporation that was supporting Adani, um, mm. stuff like that. Mm. A lot of police, mm. Mm. huge police presence. Yeah. So mm, intimidation or, yeah. or safety, public safety, arguable. But, um, yeah, that's kind of mm. been my big event, and then after that, the weekends, I've just kind of done nothing. <laughs> <laughs> How about you two? Oh, no, it's more than I've done. I've done nothing, really. It's just um, uni. Uni, yeah. uni, uni is all for me this yeah. week. So, and it's my uni break, so... Oh, Go yeah, figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take your break at the yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've had a pretty boring week of just study. So, <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh, you students. <laughs> I know. I'm the boring. <laughs> um, sorry, I'm Will. I'm sitting in the studio with Rob. I had one. Jess. Yeah. And um, we've got a, a fun show ahead of us. Mm-hmm. We're starting off early with an interview at 7.15. We're going to be speaking to Guido Melu, who is a um, an art entrepreneur and also an Afro-Brazilian writer and activist who contributed to Growing Up African in Australia. We're going to be speaking a bit about that, but also about the um, Melbourne Writer Fe- Writers Festival that's coming up, and um, that's pretty exciting. Mm. Uh, and then we've also got some other content um, from... Conversations to listen to? Conversa- conversations to listen to. Mm. We're going to be hearing from Indigenous Rights Radio. Um, they <laughs> have an Indigenous... Radio. <laughs> yeah, I, I just, they just make such great stuff. They do. Um, they've got a um, sort of a global Indigenous news wrap, and so we'll, we'll hear from that. Uh, what else are we looking forward to today? Yeah, so at 8 o'clock we're going to be talking to Jenny from Homelessness Australia, and she's going to be coming on and talking about um, kind of their... Their, their tracking of federal budget spending contribu- mm-hmm. uh, kind of allocated towards uh, homelessness services and kind of support in Australia and its tangible decrease and kind of, you know, where, mm. we're, where we're at, mm. which is pretty depressing. But mm-hmm. hopefully Jenny will, like, give us some more information and kind of tell us how we can 
work work towards making it a bit better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, yeah, so that's kind of what we're going to be looking at at 8 o'clock. We've got a lot of alternative news and kind of like headlines in between because mm-hmm. it's been a really busy week. I don't know yeah. if you all yeah. know yeah. this. Yeah. Oh We've had quite a lot of stuff happening. Have you heard that some Australians have had their flights delayed in Hong Kong? Yes, yeah. because of the protests. Yeah, yeah so there's been um, yeah. people, protesters, with actually wearing eye patches mm. in, um, I don't know, you know, because there's been a lot of, um, I think... Violence, violence by the state, by the state mm-hmm. um, so against the Chinese government. Yeah. From, from, yeah. The, from, from the Chinese and Hong Kong government yes, against yeah. um, student protesters yes. and citizen protesters yeah. who have... Um, at this point, uh, several thousand protesters have uh, mm-hmm. occupied the um, the airport, which mm. is, some people may know is a very it's major mm. transit it is, point. Yeah, it's still, it's yeah, it's still <laughs> and so as a result, there are a lot of travellers who are, who are caught in in the crossfire here, yeah. but um, some of them have chosen to go to the international media <laughs> with their complaints about having their holidays ruined. Yeah, because um, um, that's just bigger yeah, than that. Yeah, um, so it's just, it's just interesting it to is. hear the, the kind of voices that make it onto yeah. um, international onto the international stage. Um, so, yeah, I'm looking forward to Alternative News, which alternative is coming up next. News, indeed. Stay tuned, folks. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're gonna have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down to the real nitty-gritty now. One, two, nitty-gritty now, yeah. So alternative news for this week. So the first article was about um, there were some uh, reports about how YouTube radicalized Brazil. So there's been some analysis of how YouTube's push to keep people on their site to sort of uh, increase advertising revenue has actually led to the radicalization of Brazil, particularly in the lead up to their election earlier this year with the election of the hard right president. Um, so as some background, so YouTube in 2016 published a research paper on, quote, deep neural networks for YouTube recommendations. In other words, using artificial intelligence to kind of choose what ads come up and recommended videos. And so they've been using the technology to learn user behavior and then recommend more videos based on then recommendations from others using the site. And so as a result, what's happened is that Brazil have been watching a video about something completely innocuous and then they've been recommended some hard right video by some of the parties in Brazil. And this has actually been happening so much that it's indicating that YouTube's recommendations are continually and systematically directing people to these hard right videos and conspiracy channels. And so why has this been so effective? Well, YouTube's key intention is to keep people on their site, which is their sort of key business model. And typically emotive videos, which sort of convey fear or anger, are really popular at keeping people's attention. And as a result, these kinds of videos are the ones that play on people's emotions and end up becoming so popular and then therefore recommended to others. And this is all for the sake of keeping viewers on the site. And so it's been so effective that in Brazil that the elected party from the elections early this year has even stated that YouTube should be credited with most of the party's recruitment and support. So that's quite a sort of interesting development of the way that this kind of technology is starting to 
again, influence elections. Um, and now that system, that AI is driving 70% of the site's video recommendations. And there was also some more studies that have been done afterwards on the effect of this new algorithm once it'd been tested and then put onto the platform. And it's changing people's perception of reality. So, for instance, a team at the Federal University of Minas Gerais uh, found that in the months following the YouTube's change in its algorithm, so literally the month following, that the amount of positive mentions about these far-right parties and the elected president increased significantly, as well as the conspiracy theories he promoted. So there's a really clear correlation between... Um, the change in the algorithm and then the impact that started to have. So that's, I think, quite an interesting sort of, I guess, almost, almost not quite proof, but close to it of the way that these sort of technologies are really influencing politics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I was just thinking, Rob, um, we were think, talking about a story the other week, which was um, YouTube also silencing climate change. So the mm-hmm. stories that were coming up when you write climate change into the search bar right. were... It's a fake. It's a scam. So, yeah. again, algorithms at play, shaping... Yeah. They might be the more emotive videos, the ones mm. that sort of convey anger or whatever. Absolutely. And those are the ones that get recommended because people watch them. So, yeah, it's interesting, this kind of balance between editorial control and what people want. And, yeah, murky area, for sure. Um, another story is that, so this is a bit of a sad one, but 40% of forests in the United States are at risk of being devastated by a new suite of pests that have infested the country. So these new tree-damaging pests, um, which include fungal and elm diseases, have already wiped out huge swathes of trees across the U.S. Mm-hmm. So there's 450 of these pests, and that's due to international trade. So they've come across um, with various ships and planes across the world. And... They've destroyed, there's been so many trees destroyed that about 6 million tonnes of carbon have been expelled each year due to these dying plants. So that's the equivalent of about 4.6 million cars on the road every year in terms of the equivalent release of plant warming gases, planet warming gases, sorry. Um, And so this is set to worsen now. So they're expecting that 40% of the US's forest biomass is actually vulnerable to these diseases. And this is obviously particularly damaging, but also because... Uh, forests are seen as sort of a strategy to mitigate climate pollution and it's sort of mm. as a carbon sink. And so this is starting to really influence, you know, all these... We've had these sort of predictions sort of models saying, you know, if we reach 350 ppm, then that's yeah. good and that's, you know, that'll keep us safe. But then when things like this happen, that kind of then we have to be Do more a bit precautious. more of a work, yeah. Yeah. And so Absolutely. additionally, as we are speaking about the other week, like the Amazons, the rate of deforestation mm. is increasing. Um, so... It's kind of showing you can't take the predictions that we have for granted because there are things that might happen which sort of throw everything out of whack. Mm. Um, but then to balance all that, some sort of interesting stories I found. Uh, quickly, Goldsmiths University in the UK has banned selling beef on campus, which is pretty cool. So it's like a pretty major university in London, and they said they're not going to sell beef anymore as part of their climate strategy, mm, and cool. they're going to ban single-use plastic soon. So that's some interesting stuff. And then I also read that the world's largest rooftop urban farm is to open in Paris <laughs> later this year. So it's 14,000 metres squared um, with 30 different plant species producing 1,000 kilograms of fruit and veg every day in the high season. So Wow. And do you know how big that is? Or do we uh, have so any... 14,000 square metres. It's about 114 by 114 metres. So for a rooftop farm... In the middle of a, of a major city, it's pretty They're significant. Well. They're doing pretty well. <laughs> nice. Yeah. I imagine your food miles would be pretty good on that one. The food miles would be pretty good. <laughs> they would be very good. Maybe less than a mile. So. <laughs> I've just got a picture of all these French uh, hipsters kind of sitting there. You know, my coffee came from like, <laughs> up the block, literally. <laughs> yeah. 
That sounds amazing. I'm so glad you're finishing off with some positive news. Yeah. Yeah. We need some of those positive news. There is some great (laughs) stuff happening. We forget that there's good stuff happening. Yeah. There's also (laughs) good music out and about. Should we listen to a track? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So this next track is... So it's called Youth by Daughter.
The Yearly World Goa Day Fiesta is on again on the 24th of August at St. Louis de Montfort Hall in Aspendale. Now in its 17th year, the World Goa Day Fiesta celebrates the rich Goan culture with live bands and a delicious buffet spread. All welcome. Tickets are $50 per adult, $25 for children between ages 5 and 10, and $45 for pensioners. Call or SMS Oscar on 0404-848-345. That's 0404-848-345. The World Goa Day Fiesta is a 3CR supporter. And you are listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Yes, and we're looking at the headlines for this morning. I've had a quick read over the papers, and I'm actually looking at the age today. We've got a few headlines that have uh, popped up. Um, the first that we're looking at is migrant cuts loom to ease gridlock. Um, now, the Morrison government will be launching a powerful inquiry into Australia's migration program. Um, this will open the door to further cuts in immigrant numbers. Mm. Um, their reason being for this is that they've done an investigation into the um, growth in population. That's, you know, the basis of how they're yep. going to be doing this investigation. But we can probably predict that, um, yeah, the migration cuts are going to keep happening. It's be quite scary. Yeah, we were talking this morning about how they're... Absolutely. Yeah. So it's already been kind of quite scary. Um, something that's been coming up recently is the idea that... Um, uh, you can be deported on the basis of a disability. So it's been called out as extraordinarily um, ableist and kind of uh, discriminatory. But a lot of people under this clause, as part of our immigration, are actually facing deportation, including um, a 93-year-old grandmother who could be deported. She's lived 11 years in Australia, but um, she could be deported. Her family are going, this is crazy. She yeah, could die on the yeah. trip over, uh-huh. yeah. Um, and also um, families with, like, kids as young as, like, mm. they're still, like, babies kind of thing um, are, are facing deportation because yeah. of this disability clause. Uh, Something so interestingly you also found was mm. um, the on basis that we can't actually, the Australian government can turn back people for having any sort of disabilities. Yeah, or, public health and yeah. safety risks, and that's kind of mm. under Schedule 4's public interest criteria yeah. within our immigration thing. It's been looked over in the past because mm. it's a pretty... Nasty clause, honestly. <laughs> um, but the Morrison government seems to be using it as their excuse to turn out who they don't want in this country. So that says something horrible. Yeah, lovely. So there's probably going to be a lot more to come from that. Mm. Um, another headline says, the PM may head to Trump country. And in this case, we are reading that um, US President Donald Trump, um, Scott Morrison and billionaire businessman Anthony Pratt they're travelling to Ohio mm. to view the opening of a new $400 million paper mill and box factory owned by Mr. Pratt. Now, this mm. just, just to put into perspective for you, like where Morrison is going to be making, this is a big, this is on like the public scale. If he's going to be doing this, mm. it's just showing like, you know, where our interests lie as Australia. So it's just, I'm thinking Absolutely. back to last week when we were talking about with IPAN and mm. that from IPAN. Um, how the independent and peaceful Australian yes, network. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, yeah, when um, we were talking about where our interests lie in the region, you know, I think the US is just going to be this increased American to yeah. the presence in our um, in- Australian interests. Yeah, this com- so. this, yeah, this increasing Americanization, and I think it's also like 
we know that lobbyists and money has a huge influence mm-hmm. in our government. It's really much mm-hmm. it, it is a corrupt government mm-hmm. in my opinion. Um, and it's amazing that's like that's usually that, it's kind of public knowledge, but it's also like we don't tout it. We don't we're no. not showing that all the time. Yeah. So the fact that it's on the paper that he's going over to meet, <laughs> yeah, it's just know, it's it's just so blunt it and blatant. It's, it's just like, oh, casually just going to go see Ohio, not, you know, just to go see a factory. Opening. Yeah. Forget, forget you know, our regional yeah, relationships okay. and stuff like Canada. that. We need to be in Ohio right now. Uh-huh. That's okay. Is there anything else Whack. in the papers this yes, morning? Yes, there is one very big thing that's a standout in all papers this morning. The yes. spectacle of the public spectacle violence. of public violence. Yeah. Yes, so the stabbing in Sydney um, yesterday. Mm. Um, if folks oh, don't know what happened, it was yesterday mm-hmm. um, a, a man is accused of having mm-hmm. killed and one woman and stabbed another, mm-hmm. and then going on a, quote, rampage in the CBD of Sydney with a knife, mm-hmm. whereupon he was um, apprehended by a number of members of the public, mm-hmm. um, famously with a milk crate, mm, as yes, well as a number of chairs. Yes, the milk crate headlines, I'm pretty yeah. sure on... Oh, Harold's son. Yeah. Harold's son, we've got milk crate heroes. Is the big That's headline. The headline, yeah. Um, mm. Followed by the picture of the man's face under a milk crate. Under the crate. milk crate, yeah. yeah. So it's not so much about, I feel, public safety, rather than just mm. praising the... Praising the people that the just use, the, the, yeah, yeah, you know, it's just sort of yeah. just use of force against mm-hmm. an unjust use of force, and yes, I get, definitely. I get that there's a public interest angle, absolutely, mm-hmm. when oh. it comes to um, the occurrence of violence in public in needing terms of people know, needing to know why they can't get yeah. home or all of these other things. But I'm I'm interested to know what exactly we're supposed to learn from yeah. this particular <laughs> yeah. instance, um, and if that important message that we should maybe take away about, uh, you know failure of certain systems to, to prevent this from happening or other things like that, whether those are actually being communicated by the stories on the front pages. Um, yeah, well, I haven't seen I that in evidence. I'm like, interested to I saw, know if that's did, something we'll get. Yeah, it did clarify um, that it yeah. wasn't... He had terrorist ideals, but it wasn't mm. a terrorist... Attack. It was attack. more extremist. It was more extremist, and exactly right. And, they, and that's the issue. They don't explain what that means. If they're going to yeah. say it, like that's mm. just what they're going to say and mm. strike fear into the Australians' hearts, you mm. know, like... Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's quite so we've got yeah. terror and money on yes. the papers, like terror usual. Yeah. This mm. seems to be a theme. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Shall we? Shall we take it to a bit of a break, decompress a yeah. bit, and then have a really great conversation about so. um, writing and stories mm. and black identity in Australia? Sounds great. Yeah, um, we'll be right back. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Indigenous people in Australia and the Pacific have borne the brunt of nuclear testing. And this was not done unconsciously. We found documents in the British archives saying that, yes, there is uh, certain hazards, but only to primitive peoples, those that don't wear clothes and don't wash, unlike us British. So the sort of racism inherent in this whole operation was known and understood from the beginning that these were the casualties of a larger imperial policy and that they were able to bear the brunt because there were very small populations and didn't have much political voice. And as we fast forward to today, we see that same thing. 3CR, keeping you informed about Australia's nuclear past and present. At such a time, it's important to have a voice like 3CR, steady, constant, sane and committed to a nuclear-free Australia. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis 
from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6pm Tuesdays. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The cops are coming with eviction orders very soon. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. And you are listening to Wednesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. Uh, the time right now is 7.30 and we're going to go straight into an interview. Um, we've got Guido Mello, who is a fashion entrepreneur, writer, activist, and who also contributed to Growing Up African in Australia, edited by Maxine Bonaber-Clark for Black Ink, um, and will also be speaking at the Melbourne Writers' Festival. Uh, Guido, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for coming in this early in the morning. Um, Shall we, shall we get right. straight to it? So, um, <laughs> so you contributed uh, to Growing Up African in Australia. Yep. Um, so obviously everyone should go out and, and get the book for themselves or borrow it from their local library. But can you tell us a bit about what you wrote in, in the book? Yeah, so um, I'm um, sort of a, a bit of a exception. My story as an African comes through uh, South, via South America. I'm a um, South American diaspora African. So we were, um, my uh, ancestors were enslaved and brought, uh, on the black ships through South America. And those ships were the same ships that, you know, took us through the Caribbean and to, you know, North America. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if Jay-Z was my cousin or something, <laughs> because it's, we were, we came from the same ships and, yeah. Um, when Maxine Benebeklak, Ahmed, and Magan Magan decided to write a book and propose that to Black Ink here in Melbourne, uh, it, it was clear to Maxine that, you know, not just talking about being African, uh, from the African continent, but being Africa from the African diaspora, and that's where I came in. So I tell my story coming from Brazil, you know, mm. growing up in Salvador, then moving to Rio, and then my short stint uh, visit to France, to Europe, and then um, to Perth, and then arriving finally in Melbourne. Yeah, and it was it was a great read. I really enjoyed reading oh, um, thank you. your your perspective as well. It's something that um, I think uh, it, it's kind of a point that you make um, indirectly that um, African voices are very. Um, out of the centre when it comes to Australia. Um, in fact, you can walk around and have difficulty, at least in the, in the past, you could walk around and have difficulty seeing other African faces in public, other black faces in public. And that, that I, certainly that would contribute to 
sort of your reading of what it's like to be in Australia and, and be Australian? Yeah, so, you know, when I arrived in the early, the very early 2000s and, um, you know, you would, I used to work in Melbourne CBD, you know, I, I was fixing printers and you would see an African face every two weeks, you know. Mm. You know, and that was so bizarre, you know, like I would, and I would, as soon as I saw anyone black, I would run to them and I would talk to them and I would say, hey, how are you going, you know, sometimes just, just to say hi, like mm. we didn't have to uh, become friends on the spot, but I just wanted to see other people. So that was, that was interesting then. And then with the arrival of the new communities, like in the late 2000s, that was changing. And um, I remember speaking with this uh, white Anglo-Australian, and he was saying, you know, it's nice to see more black people. It makes me feel like I live in reality. I don't know if that's how other people feel, but, I, like, that was an interesting comment. And I, I, um, yeah, so I feel now Australia is more close to, to the globalized world where we have communities from all sorts of corners and Africans are here too. Mm. But even still, there exists a book called Growing Up African in Australia and um, we, we, that's sort of set aside as being a, 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 a particular set of stories that need to be told whereas there's a, there's a sort of substrate of people who are classed as the norm and the centre in the society. And do you, do you see that, that changing at any point? Do you see whiteness as being de- deconstructed as the centre of society? I, I, it's a huge, big question. Yeah, right? it's, it, in Australia, we, like, the African community is about 1.5%. Oh. Like, if you add um, the other black fellows of this nation, which is the indigenous, you have about 3.3. So, like, there's about 5% of people there sort of have black skin or are considered black being either indigenous First Nations or uh, African, and it's really hard to decentralize a conversation when you're such a small minority. You know, like there's 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 behaviors that you that you acquire uh, for survival that um, that only happen when you you in the, in this sort of disadvantage. In saying that, um, the discourse we that, that there's a discourse, there's an idea. Here in Australia, that you know, like whiteness equal Australian, mm-hmm. and and that's something that is so ingrained that I and I and I fight it out, even with other black people. Like when they say, "Oh, I saw this Australian doing this," and I say, "Do you mean an Anglo-Saxon Australian, a mm-hmm. white Australian?" Yeah. So even in the African community, yeah. you see that same mindset of white being yeah. Australian, and yeah. and and that's something that's like you know, it's it's so distressing because um. The, people describe everyone that's white, even if they just have for a, like a week, just a, a Russian white person in silence is considered an Australian as opposed to mm. a Chinese Australian, for instance, that is here for like, you know, 50 years, 70 mm. years mm. or 100. Yeah. So that's sort of, I think that the culture shift has to happen. You know, like yesterday, you guys were talking about the, what happened in, in Sydney. And um, the whole afternoon I was watching on Twitter the guy became either a terrorist or a lone wolf, depending on who was reporting and depending how they perceive his skin color or race to be. And and that's mm. can can like I remember there was this car crash in Melbourne in in, in Flinders Street, mm. and this guy went crazy. I think he had a episode. 
he was of Indian or some uh, um, South Asian South Asian descent. Yeah. And I remember calling seven seven four because I'm one of those. <laughs> <laughs> and I spoke with Raf Epstein and I said, can, "Can't we just be crazy? How about if I go crazy? Uh. Like you know, and I have an episode, and I heard someone, can I be?" Just a crazy person. Do I have to be a terrorist? Mm. Like, and that's something that we've, you know, like, mm. God forbid. I like, I, I fear if I ever have a heart attack. I fear that's my worst. Like, I, I'd rather die because if I have a heart attack in the city, I don't think people will help. Mm. And that's that's so sad. Just to to think that maybe you might not, you know, get help just because of the skin of your color. And that's something that we carry. Mm. Um, you've also had a lot of attention, or a lot of attention. I mean, to say that people have responded um, really positively to an article that you wrote in Ascension oh, yeah, um, recently. Um, when they see us through Guido Melu's eyes, um, and I just want to ask you a bit about um, about the article. Um, there's a, a section called "Devils in the Details," which talks about um, sort of assumptions and microaggressions. I suppose you could you could call it. I'm not sure if that's the language that you use. Um, but uh, the the way in which, um, for example, your children are singled out by an organizer or a party as messy, um, but um, and you you read that as being due to their their skin color. How to what extent do you see that kind of microaggression tied to the normalization of whiteness and the centralness of white people in Australia? So in, in a polite, uh, developed OECD nation like Australia, uh, especially with um, reasonably stable economy you know aggression is something that's not direct you know like in poverty stricken places like the south of the United States you might uh, due to lack of structure or, or you know like just lack of education you see these violent acts of racism being more explicit but here in Australia people tend to be more educated and they tend to um use the expressions of racism in a more polished way, which nonetheless diminish the, the effects of racism in the person. I think weathering is something that few scientists have been studying, which is the long-term effects of, of racism in a person of color. Like, I, if I close my eyes, I can remember, you know, like if you ask any black person, the first time you experience racism, and start as so as early as four, three, six, you know, mm. and... Uh, that happens with my daughter when she was three in kindergarten and um, a couple of kids told her that they don't want to play with her because she was the color of pool. Mm. And I only imagine this, it's some language or some behavior that they're learning at home, mm. which means this, they pass into the children and the children are just in, in acting again. Um, and... You know, micro, this, this article, it's really, I think, uh, it's the closest I, I ever gonna get to Ava Duvernay. Because, I mean. Yeah. Ava Duvernay, yeah. Uh, it was so nice to see the series. It was interesting, not nice, but it was mm. interesting to see the series. This is how this is. And when I saw, it triggered a memory that I had long forgotten mm. of a police encounter that I have in Brazil. Um, when I was accused um, of some theft. And, you know, you have to read the article to find out more. But basically, um, and even when I told that story after to 
friends or people that I know, to white people, usually the first thing that people ask me, especially if they were white, is like, oh, but were you guilty or like, mm. did they have any reason to accuse you? Mm. As opposed to how horrible, you know. And that's how I saw the response from the black community in Melbourne or the people in Australia who read it was like, wow, this is awful. I'm sorry. Experience as opposed to possibly doubt my my honesty and my integrity. And that's, uh, you know, so that's what I want to talk about in the yeah. article. And, and through that, you know, I I started to mention a history of racism that started mm. in early ages. And that's what, when my kids went to this party uh, in Melbourne, they were called messy. And, you know, like that's sort of just ways of mm. people to engage mm. racistly. You know, and people when they called out, when I called the person on it, they they cry. They did what uh, you know, yeah. every white without respect to the panel, but every white woman ever done mm. when they called on racism which is cry. Mm-hmm. Men get angry and women cry. And yeah. um, I think um it's a perennial perennial article that we refer back to which is um the I, I don't quite remember what it's called, but it's about the 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 use of tears by by white women by Ruby Hamad, um, which is a very um, important article from the Guardian. I think it might be worth yeah. referring back to folks if you're listening at home. Yeah, there's a, there's an yeah. incredible Twitter uh, going um, yesterday of yeah. this white South African woman in Hong Kong <sighs> saying how she fled South Africa so she could avoid the fight, and they stole. The Hong Kong that she loved, they, the Hong Kongers, the Hong Kongers who are fighting for democracy, mm-hmm. yeah. But they stole the Hong Kong that she loves, and that's like she completely turned potentially one of the most historical moments of the 21st century in Hong Kong and China to her yeah. personal show. Mm. And it, it's it's going, it's it's it's, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah, it's like you have to see it. So, um, if, if you want to hear more on, on this particular topic, but also about, um, uh, growing up African in Australia, um, Guido, you're actually going to be, um, speaking on a panel at, um, the Melbourne Writers Festival, which is coming up. Uh, the, the, uh, event is called Let's Talk Love with Bigwa Chol. Bigwa Chol is correct. going to be, um, facilita- facilitating the panel. Um, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So, uh, the Afro Hub, um, in partnership with the Melbourne's Writers Festival, is holding this All Black event at the Wheeler Center. You know, if you are in Melbourne, it's just on Little Lonsdale Street. Mm-hmm. And from 3 p.m., we have uh, the Negro Speak of Books, which is a book club run by this incredible um, person called Ines Tumbras. And she'll be running a workshop on that. Then we have the writing rap with a ridge and few, uh, in guests, um, talking about rap and hip hop. And then we have breaking down to the publishing world, uh, as well with Inez and other guests. And then eventually me at 630, um, talking about growing up African Australia, mm-hmm. uh, will be, uh, interviewed by Big Show. And also, I think on a panel, Ahmed uh, Yosef, who also is one of the producers of Growing Up African in Australia. Mm. And we'll be, be talking about, you know, uh, the book and, and other 
African ness, I hope. Yeah. There will be a party after yeah. as well at 8 p.m. So there's, you know, like as every African yeah. Yeah. event, it's probably going to end up in dancing and music. But I think it's a great opportunity for people who are interested in knowing a bit more mm. about Africans. Australian Africans are doing culturally in this city the Melbourne Writers Festival and the Wheeler Centre are offering mm. this to us via the Afro Hub, curated by the Afro Hub, and I, I strongly recommend it. It's on the 31st of August. Mm-hmm. and At 6.30 p.m. if you want to hear the, the panel on If you want to hear the panel, Australia. but you can come for the whole afternoon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's important to note that this is a, a writer's event that is for, for one free and happening on the weekend, <laughs> which is... That's so nice. So That's unique, true. isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there's no excuses, yeah. you know. Like no, people, no. People can come. Um, although they are taking bookings, so you should get in contact with either the Wheeler Centre. You can find their contact details on their website. Or um, head to the Melbourne Writers Festival 2019 page at mwf.com.au and search for the event Let's Talk Love with Bigoa Chol. Uh, the the event with um, Guido and Ahmed Yusuf is going to be on the 31st of August at 6.30 p.m. That's uh, correct. Guido, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, thank you for giving me the opportunity. And you're listening to Wednesday Breakfast. We'll be right back. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. volunteering contributes to a happier life? Want to know what you can do to make a difference in your local community of Whittlesea? Whittlesea Community Connections hold a volunteer information session every month. It is a friendly session where you get to meet others and be linked to not-for-profit organisations. Contact Michelle from Whittlesea Community Connections on 94016630 or visit our website www.whittleseacc.org.au to find out more. A 3CR supporter. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! 
Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au.
And that was a little song provided to us by Rob, who was doing the music this week. Rob, what was the name of that song? So that was Bounce by Bracedronaut. Um, and yeah, it's a little little favourite of mine I've been listening to for a few years. Mm. Yeah, Rob, I'm very impressed by your music choices this morning. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so uh, if anyone, actually no one knows yet, because we only discussed it today, Rob and I are going to be uh, picking the tune. DJs? DJs. Yeah. Disc jockeys, <laughs> is that what they say? Yeah, is that what we're... I think so, disc jockeys, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we are the uh, resident disc jockeys for this week and next. Mm, absolutely. Um, yeah, but Rob, you've done well. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> so we're just going to have a quick look at the weather. Um, so today we're going to have a top of 14. It's currently 9 degrees now in... Right now, where are we? Fitzroy. Fitzroy. <laughs> I had to think about that for a second. Yeah, 9 degrees in Fitzroy today. It's going to be cloudy all day. A little bit of sun, 12 o'clock, 1 p.m. on your lunch break, maybe. Um, but then for the rest of the day, it's going to be pretty continual cold. cloudy. Pretty cold snap. I think so. As they call it. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, okay, well, we're about to go into our next interview, but mm-hmm. we've got a few minutes to go. I was thinking, yep. Rob, we've been playing, as you say, your, your music's just got a special shout-out. Should we play... Um, <laughs> Another tune of yours? Yeah, absolutely. So up next, we have Karugabin mm-hmm. with the song People Everywhere, brackets still alive. We'll be right back.
So that was Karugabin playing People Everywhere, brackets, still alive. Yeah, and now we're going to head into our next interview. It's just on 8 o'clock. So for all those of you who don't know, last week was National uh, Homeless Week, kind of a week dedicated to raising awareness and a voice for individuals uh, currently experiencing insecure and unsafe housing. Um, And their message this year was to end homelessness. Um, however, their call seems to be falling currently on deaf ears, as a new analysis by Homelessness Australia has shown a drop in federal funding. Funding. We have Jenny on the line from the organisation to kind of tell us more. Good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. So the federal budget for tracking, um, kind of tackling homelessness this year was uh, $1.56 billion, which is stated by Homelessness Australia to leave a shortfall of $82 million in funding. Could you kind of tell us what this shortfall is all about? Yes, look. We really haven't seen any additional investment from the federal government for a decade now. Mm. And um, when you look at what's happened um, over the last four or five years, not only haven't we had any investments, but additional investments, because that money, it sounds like a lot, but it actually pays to maintain all of the public housing around the country, as well as for the homelessness services. And it hasn't been adopted for inflation or for the population growth that we've seen, um, you know, skyrocketing around our country. Mm. And so if it had been adjusted, um, it uh, would be $82 million more than it is today. But, you know, we're really not asking for government to just continue putting in what it has been putting in uh, for a decade now. We mm. obviously need you know, quite a different level of planning and investment um, to make sure that everybody in our community can have, uh, you know, a minimum standard of home that they can afford. Absolutely. And you mentioned that this is actually qu- not quite a lot of money. To put it in perspective, 2014-2015, um, the budget was $1.43 billion. And um, I believe Homelessness Australia is saying, well, with the rate of inflation in our, as you said, our population, uh, we, we need extra funding. It is true it that we've... It sounds like a lot, but obviously maintaining yeah. the very old public housing that we had right around our country which is now predominantly built post-war mm. and the only real exception that we've had was in the context of the global financial crisis right. from 2009 onwards mm. um, and that was about a year's worth of uh, 20, 25,000 properties so we need that every year mm. to uh, stop falling further behind. Absolutely, and a lot of the statistics come out of this. We're still working with our 2016 consensus dates about our homeless population, which, as, as you just mentioned, has very potentially increased since then, so we're working with even more people who need our support. Yeah, we are, and, you know, we are very fortunate that we have the census. Our mm. census does look at homelessness, and even though it only happens every five years, it means that the figures date quite quickly. It does, you know, draw a line in the sand for how mm. we're going as a community, and to think that in that uh, last census we saw um, homelessness increase by 14% over those five years and we know from the people fronting up to our homelessness services that homelessness, you know, the number of people coming to our services is going up by about 4% uh, every year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nationally we're turning away about 250 people a day uh, empty-handed. So, you know, we do have uh, a problem of considerable significance. Absolutely, and you, you can kind of, as you said, feel that tangible rise. Um, you've called on the government to provide a budget of $1.65 billion, which your organisation uh, kind of argues can make a real difference. Um, what do you think that could 
add to kind of our federal approach to homelessness at the moment? Because as you said, at the moment, the budget's very much just maintaining what we already have. What, what do we have? Do well, we I have a comprehensive? That, I think that call is really to say, uh, not to, to not fall backwards with the value of the money ah, in yeah. terms that we've got. Mm-hmm. We need that um, additional $82 million investment. But that's really just the money that has been doing what it's been doing for a long time now, which is maintaining our public housing and paying for the homelessness services that we've got. Um, what we've really got to start to tackle is that we've got a shortfall of about 433,000 social housing properties around the country mm. and more than 100,000 in Victoria. And until we start to say, OK, we've had uh, 28 years of positive growth in the country, mm. the theory that, that that wealth will trickle down to people who are the most disadvantaged in our community, and we've just got to keep providing you know, jobs and uh, boosting the economy, that's going to actually help people on our lowest incomes is clearly wrong um, and complete rubbish. And we're going to have to actually make clear to our governments that we do want them to invest to make sure that uh, people on our lowest incomes can have a home. So we're, we're, we're 433,000 short uh, around mm. the country at the moment. That's, that's just for the current need and clearly our population is growing and need is growing. So Definitely. Uh, we've got to get started. Yeah, absolutely, and I'll, I'll touch on public housing in just a moment, but uh, obviously from our current government right now, we're getting a lot of rhetoric such as a fair go for those who have a go, which is, of course, has a huge amount of implicit assumptions and arguments within that statement of kind of this undeserving. Um, and with the, with that rhetoric and combined with this kind of fallen funding, do you think we're at the stage where there's any possibility of our administration listening? I mean, it seems as if it's falling completely on deaf ears. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a community problem. You know, I think, um, you know, we've got, I believe we've got about something like a quarter of a, a million vacant jobs in, in a country and about 1.6 million job seekers. So clearly some people uh, are going to miss out. And mm. there are, you know, stories all the way through that. I, I, I have to be a little bit encouraged that our federal government has um, appointed a Minister for Housing, Michael Speaker. Mm-hmm. and the role of Assistant Minister for Community Housing, Homeless and Community Services, which is Luke Howard. And so at least there is uh, now people um, with the roles of thinking about these issues. And what we haven't had for five or six years now is anybody in that type of leadership role. So um, I think you know, we've got a, a significant learning curve and we don't have any um, real government bureaucracy in place to start to develop policy um, on those issues, Mm -hmm. um, that we at least have people that we can talk to and um, hope that we can uh, assist them to advocate uh, to the Prime Minister and to the Treasurer that we need this investment. And it looks like we're um, going to have a bit of an economic downturn in the next while, and Mm -hmm. that is a really important opportunity, I think, for us to do it that country, what we did in the global financial crisis, and invest in social housing and stimulate the economy. Sorry, Jenny, you're just dropping out a little bit on us. Um, could you just uh, see if you can adjust the phone, just because we're having a little bit of trouble hearing you on this end? How's that now? That's that. Yeah, that's much better. Thank Good. you. So, oh, okay. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, so yeah, I just might have, I might have just let the bottom end of the phone drift away from that, <laughs> so I won't do that again. Yeah, thank you, thank you. So you're discussing um, the economic downturn we're potentially facing, and as you, as you said, what 
what kind of impacts that's going to be that that's going to have on kind of funding and stuff like that. Um, yeah, what we did last time mm-hmm. was uh, invest in social housing as part of what we did to stimulate the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things governments does during times of economic downturn is invest in infrastructure, and you know we've seen roads built and. You know, public services, all those things. Mm. So I think we do need to think about housing as part of our infrastructure. It's not just bridges and tunnels and oh. public transport. It's, Social infrastructure. It should be infrastructure, and I think one of the things that we'll be pushing hard and, and hope that the community will come on board with us uh, in supporting is that if we do have to do those sorts of things as a community, that social housing is in there as part of that. Mm. And discussing kind of community solutions, uh, unfortunately, Australia, the, the, this rhetoric that we're seeing in the government is really translated into our community. I mean, a 2017 SVS kind of survey found that one in four Australians hold really negative attitudes towards individuals experiencing homelessness, quoting kind of stereotypes like lazy freeloaders or not working hard enough. How do you think we change that narrative? Because it seems like it's embedded at the moment. Well, I think the good thing about that stat is it's less than half. Hmm. have that sort of attitude and given that our um, you know politics t- t- seems to turn on less than two percent these hmm. days that's good um, I think you know if you go back maybe six eight years um, people used to talk about the value of housing going up you know way ahead of the rest of the economy as a really good thing you know people often said, um, people probably older than you, Adrian, said, you know, look, mm. I bought a house for $250,000 and it's now worth $750,000 and isn't that wonderful? Mm. Without actually recognising that, that meant that uh, rents were going up for people on low incomes and, um, you know, the market was moving well out of reach of young people looking to buy homes and, uh, you know, live that Australian dream of paying off a home. And I think that rhetoric shifted. I think the community more broadly now understands that our housing market has got way ahead of income mm. and it's really distorted and that it is a problem. Um, I just don't think that we've got to the point where we're prepared to upset <clears throat> our um, investment plans. Um, I'm talking broadly as a community here, uh, to actually make that happen. And there okay. still is, as you say, a significant number of people and conversations that go to um, the bad decisions that an individual might make um, along the path to homelessness. Um, we all make bad decisions from time to time. Rather than recognising that you know, the way our housing market is at the moment, some people are going to be homeless. Mm. And the way our employment market is at the moment is a lot of people are going to be out of work or in insufficient work to be actually able to live reasonably well. Yeah, definitely quoting those many paths into homelessness and kind of, yeah, okay, well, it's, it's nice to hear from your perspective that social change is moving, it's just moving slower. Well, uh, it is slowly. moving slowly and mm. it is patchy and it's not consistent and it hasn't led to any mm. change in our policy settings and unfortunately that's what we all voted for um, yeah. collectively at the last election, mm. which is very disappointing because we really do need that sort of leadership and injection um, of social housing, but also uh, the support services that some people need um, to live well in that housing once they've got it. Mm. Hi, this is uh, Rob here. I just want to ask a question. Hi, Rob. Um, hello. So 
With the increase in homelessness, it's a lot of this coming from evictions within houses as well in terms of people not being able to pay rent and so on and so forth? Yeah, we are seeing a rise in evictions mm. right across the board, whether that's from... Um, well, what we're seeing is more people coming to our services who have been evicted. Mm. And that that can be from private housing, it can be from community housing, it can be from public housing. So I think there's a piece to do for um, our public sector uh, providers to become even better social landlords and have the support services that they need to be able to do that properly and be able to manage those situations. But I think it is also a sign in the private sector that uh, uh, there's there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of um, fairly callous movement in uh, the market um, around you know what the landlord. Um, what suits a landlord, not what is the humane mm. response to people mm. living in those homes. Yeah, and just just to quote a recent report, um, it's been 20,000 public housing units have been closed over uh, the course of the last decade, which was recently um, shown through a uh, analysis. Um, and it, it's kind of been transferred into a lot of uh, public, uh, private housing uh, areas which have been put under stress. Um, following Victoria, though, specifically, we've had a pretty poor track record with providing individuals experiencing homelessness with support. Um, last year, the Andrews government promised us a 1,000 new public housing union units while also tearing down some long-established public housing in Victoria. And then at the end of July, we were told um, that there'd be an increase in rental prices, which kind of feeds in perfectly what you, to what you were saying, Rob. Increase in rental prices uh, for public housing after review of market prices, which puts over 64,000 individuals in public housing currently under pressure. Um, and then, Reese, just now as part of Homelessness Week, um, and the Andrews government has pledged 57 tiny homes on vacant government-owned land. This feels like a very confused, convoluted and kind of tokenistic narrative. Is well, What's your kind of your sense from kind of... Victoria's recent track record with 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 dealing and supporting people experiencing homelessness. Well, it's a really good question. I suppose the way we see it is that um, the situation we have in Victoria is something that governments of all colours have contributed to over the mm. last thirty years. Um, we are at the bottom of the league table in terms of the amount of social housing that we have. So nationally, you've got a bit less than 5% in, in Victoria. There are different figures, but it's, you know, we've got less than 3%. Mm. So that's disappointing, um, but it's not the fault of the Andrews government particularly. It's something mm. that every government that we've had for a long time now has allowed um, to happen. The Andrews government has um, really shown international leadership in its focus on family violence, and it has increased the amount of housing and support for women and children escaping family violence, and mm-hmm. that is the biggest single reason for um, people um, approaching our homelessness services for uh, support. And it's also done some um, uh, best practice um, work in relation to rough sleeping and looking at um, access to supported housing and ongoing permanent support for people with high complexity who we might see sleeping rough in our streets. And it has promised uh, 3,000 properties, uh, sorry, 1,000 properties over three years, and we don't think that's nearly enough. Um, And even without the help of the federal government, we think that should be more like um, 3,000 properties a year. Mm 
for, for its investment. The thing that it's been doing that um, I think um, people are a little bit more confused about, and it is complicated, but essentially all that old housing stock that we've had mm. that hasn't that you know that is probably past its use by date and needs to go replacing. Right. Um, you know, if the government was to spend any money it could get hold of refurbishing that, it wouldn't be able to do anything else. So those of us who are in this space and interested in social housing have all agreed, a bit reluctantly, that the approach the Victorian government is taking of getting involved with private developers, um, really selling off the farm, um, having that public housing redeveloped with a 10% increase in the amount of public housing, but there also being private and affordable housing as part of that development, um, is a way of replacing and renewing that stock without it costing the government very much mm-hmm. so that any money the government can put towards social housing can be for additional stock. Now, I can understand people's reservations about that and mm-hmm. we have reservations about it, but we do think it's practical. So that's what's happening. In terms of the <clears throat> rent adjustments that um, you've referred to, um, People in public housing, the rent is 25% of their income. Mm. And we've always fought for people to be able to stay in that public housing even if that income increases because it makes for a uh, a stronger community, a, a community of various strengths. So that does mean that as people's income goes up, it does go up uh, to a higher rent if people can afford that. And I think that's the right way to do it. It's not okay. right to kick people out. Yeah. Just because uh, they start to earn um, some decent money, if they want to mm. stay there, they should. But the yeah. what they do end up paying is called market rent, but is actually a bit cheaper than what market rent would be in some of our very expensive inner urban areas. Okay, well, thank you so much, Jenny, for coming on and kind of giving us uh, the up-to-date on kind of public housing and also this drop in federal spending. We'll have to get you on to kind of see how this progresses. And Yes, always yeah. happy, uh, Idrin and Rob, to um, uh, talk with you. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Good on you. Thanks. Bye. And we'll now just be listening to a quick conversation from the uh, Fair Go for Pensioners conference, which was held back in July. But I thought this kind of fit in well. This is um, Jack Vadins talking about public housing. And I will give you the details again after the end. We'll be back in about seven minutes. Uh, the second uh, panellist is Jack Verdens. Uh, he's comes from the corporate sector, worked in IT as a special technical assistant and later in marketing. He has since become involved with local, local community justice issues and since nine, sorry, 2017 he's worked with Friends of Public Housing Victoria. Welcome, Jack. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah, so I had a good breakfast. Had a good morning too. Pretty good, wasn't it? So I'm looking forward to lunch as well. So uh, great, great, great local catering. Okay, let's get back on the topic. Um, public housing. Uh, in the last 15 to 20 years, there has been zero new public housing developed in Victoria. 
which seems to say to me that the only way you can get into a bit of public housing is to be an emergency accommodation request and you've got to wait for someone to move out of the existing housing or die. That's the only way you can get in. How big's the problem? There's eight, there are 82,000 people currently on the public housing waiting list. Last night, 25,000 people were homeless in Victoria. Now, this wasn't always the case, and maybe this also lends a, a sight to the future. Um, in the 1950s, all the way through to 1996, in Australia, we were developing every year 8,000 to 14,000 new public housing dwellings. And that's where we get our current stock from. So the will was there with the government in those days to do, to do, do the right thing. Um, however, we exist, Friends of Public Housing Victoria, and other organisations because it's really fallen into a hole. Uh, currently, what's the government doing here in Victoria about public housing? Well, it's actually giving it away. They're currently transferring 14,000 properties from government management to giving it to community housing organisations as the gentleman over there somewhere said earlier on, this is not public housing, they're private organisations with their own corporate targets. So the government is essentially just getting out of the public housing business and it's actually exacerbating the problem by giving away 14,000 properties currently in plan. Um, now, obviously, people will end up living in these properties, but they won't be the most needy. They'll be picked from the middle of the public housing queue um, according to the rules that the uh, community housing organisations operate under. OK. Um, quickly touch on the public housing renewal program. The government came up with a great idea. We've got all these walk-up estates, three storeys high, um, valuable real estate, inner-city um, areas, so they decided they would redevelop these and with an extra 10% of public housing accommodation on it in return for giving the rights to a developer to also develop towers of private apartments. And first three, three um, uh, estates have been announced in terms of redevelopment. We went from about 220 um, developments, uh, sorry, um, dwellings to about 300 odd and they slammed another 700 private for sale units on those blocks. So we're actually losing the land that we could possibly be developing new uh, estates on. And not only that, but the new public housing that they were being developed was actually going to be run by community housing organisations, not by the government. Um, our lobbying was very successful there and this is actually almost bizarre that they did it, but about, about three days ago they actually renamed, renamed the Public Housing Redevelopment Program to the Social Housing Redevelopment Program. It's no longer going to be public housing. Shock, horror. Okay, so who are these community housing organisations that the um, housing is going to? They have done an absolutely incredible job of siphoning every cent of Commonwealth and um, state government revenue to their own needs. So 
since 1996, there has been heaps of money going into social housing, but it's been going to the community housing organisations. And how does that come, come about? Well, it comes about because these guys have got money, they've got lobbyists, they've set up organisations such as the AHURI, Australian Housing Urban Institute Research, fancy names, they come out with fancy reports, reports all come out of a strategy in their favour. They pay universities to do studies for them. They run conferences. There's a conference, if you want to meet all these guys from community housing, they're at a conference in Darwin on August the 27th. And if you've got $1,300, you can pay it at a conference fee. So we're talking about corporates. Now, these are rich guys, and the really scary thing is it's now also been infiltrated by people from the financial services sector. So there's only one one way that this is all going. Um, just a bit of a, a story about how public, uh, sorry, community housing treat their, treat their people. Uh, lady, it's a true story, lady out in Caroline Springs, living there with her son, two bedroom house, son moves out, they found out about it. Okay, you're not entitled to an empty bedroom and they shifted her from a two bedroom house in Caroline Springs to a boarding house, rooming house in Footscray, studio apartment. Same rent, because it's always a percentage of your income, and no longer can her son or grandchildren come and visit and have a room. No help, and, and not only that, but they also are very well renowned for just kicking people out as well. Um, Hopefully we can talk, talk more, a bit more about this during questions because I haven't got time to do it now. Um, the next big step is, all I have to do is read the lobbying of the community housing groups to know what's going to happen next or what their reports are saying. So they've actually siphoned off all the public housing in the other states other than Victoria. We're the only state with any left. So there's nothing else to gain. So now... Now they're going to get the government to borrow cheap money. Interest rates are down and let's go and build all that public housing. But who's going to run it? I can predict who's going to run it. It'll be these people. So our lobbying, we will get ahead of the game and lobby against that and that's going to be our battle over the next few years. And that was Jack Bedin talking about public housing um, who work, he works with the Friends of Public Housing Victoria and you can find them on Facebook. Uh, it's literally Facebook, look up F-O-P-H or Friends of Public Housing um, and you should be able to find their page. Uh, their main contention is that in the last 15 or 20 years there's been zero public housing developed in Victoria and we were just talking about that in the last interview. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say before, um, I've been reading a really interesting book at the moment called Evicted by Matthew Desmond. It won the Pulitzer, I think, two years ago. Um, and... As you were saying before, I went about how like one in four people don't really have any sympathy for people who are homeless. I think mm. this is a really interesting book about changing that narrative because it goes uh, the the author Matthew he spent a year or so within all these different communities tracking people's lives of how they start within housing, then get evicted, and then become homeless. Mm. And it's just something simple like one week they couldn't pay the rent because they broke their arms, so they had to go to the hospital, and then they get evicted, and then it's just like their life completely comes out of their control. Absolutely, and I yeah. think it's a really powerful book to read in terms of shifting that narrative and. 
understanding of mm. things that are just out of your control sometimes. Yeah, and if you are interested in getting more involved, there's actually a demonstration happening today, 14th of August. Um, so it's a public housing protest uh, on the steps of Parliament House. It'll be at 1pm a meeting and then basically a protest until about 2pm as Parliament will be discussing um, public housing and homelessness in the session. So if you're interested in that, shop at 1 to one thirty or 2 o'clock kind of thing. And um, that's being run by Defend and Extend Public Housing Australia, which is another kind of conglomerate. You can find them on Facebook and follow them. Um, and, yeah, you'll be hearing it about 3CR, I'm sure, because we've got a few members, uh, a few volunteers here who kind of are part of that. Anyway, that's the show today. Um, Will, would you like to tell us about our first guest? And we'll do a yeah, quick one-up. Yeah, of course. We were speaking to writer and activist Guido Melu, who is a... Um, Fashion and entrepreneur, among other things, but also a, a writer who contributed to Growing Up African in Australia. Mm. And we were talking about his contribution to that book, as well as the upcoming panel that's going to be happening as part of the Melbourne Writers' Festival. To remind you folks, the panel discussion is called Let's Talk Love with Bigwa Chol. Um, and if you want to uh, book your tickets, head to mwf.com.au. If you don't have access to the internet, you can head over to the Wheeler Centre. The Wheeler Centre is located on Little Lonsdale Street next to the State Library, and uh, they're open business hours 9 to 5 on weekdays. You can just uh, make a booking there. Uh, that event is going to be happening on the 31st of August at 6.30pm, if you're interested, and it's free. Absolutely, and his fashion was on point. I know, right? <laughs> you guys yes. can't see it, but he had a great orange mm. sweater on. Very well dressed for today's weather. <laughs> it's going to be a top of 14 today. Um, cloudy with a patchy fog this morning, and we're going to be having a medium chance of light showers. Um, it was spitting when we all arrived at the studio mm. this morning. Uh, winds northerly, 15 to 25 k's. Yep, and so what are we grateful for wrapping up? What are, who wants to jump in? I'm going to go for good news stories. Oh, good ones. Yes. Just yes. the ones that make you all fluffy inside. Just, you know, a bit of a mix-up from the usual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like a thousand-metre squared rooftop farm. <laughs> yeah, in Paris. like that one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Absolutely. I'm grateful for scarves. My mum has knitted me at least five different scarves. <laughs> <laughs> you will not run out of them while I'm alive. <laughs> How about you, Arden? Um, I am grateful for rain. Hottest July ever on record. Yes. Climate yeah. crisis currently ungo- undergoing. <laughs> I am grateful for the little bit of rain that we've been getting. Mm. Um, yeah, I've been enjoying walking in that. Mm. And I'm grateful. I've been using Headspace a bit for meditation at the moment. Oh. So I've been really grateful for that because it's helped me. That's an app, yeah? Yes. Yep. Headspace, um, app. Headspace app. Little orange logo. Keeping me, keeping me on track. So that's been nice. Yeah, quick shout out to Earth Matters that played before. And next up, coming up, is Stick Together. So we'll see you all next week. Mm-hmm. See you next week. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au and if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.